giver of all grace. We are in desperate need of you to dispense it. For we long for grace. We desire to drink it that it might quench the hurt within. We desire to eat it that it might give us strength to live. We desire to wear it that others may see we are a trophy of your grace. We know that grace, like water, runs to the lowest place. So we get low. Our circumstances have brought us low. But more than that, your holiness has brought us low. Our hearts have exhausted the fountain of sin. It's a blessed anchor to know that our hearts can never exhaust the fountain of grace. We experienced grace yesterday. And it was sweet. But we need grace for today. Father, depending on yesterday's grace is like attempting to eat enough in one meal to fill us for six months. Or attempting to inhale enough air into our lungs with one breath to sustain us for a week. You've permitted us to draw upon your storehouse of grace from day to day as we need it. So God, we are back and we are knocking. We need grace for today. Don't leave us empty-handed. Father, may we be different because this text has been laid out before us. We realize this is not just an ancient book. It's a holy book. It's your book. So we don't merely lay it out before us. We lay ourselves before it. Will you please point out our vain pursuits? We pursue wealth, popularity, pleasures. As if these things can make our eternal souls happy. They are fleeting. They pop like a bubble. They melt like snow. They evaporate like boiling water. Pour substance into our souls this morning. Concrete doctrine into our hearts. Make diamonds out of our affections. And put graphite into our spiritual bones. Give us gospel. And we will give you our hearts, our souls, our minds, and our lives. You are our maker. Sin is our failure. Christ is our Savior. Faith is our answer. New life is our pleasure. Would you now do the supernatural work of feeding our spirits with the bread of life? These are precious moments. Precious moments in which we anticipate you speaking to us through your word. Where our prayer ends, may the word begin. Amen. We've been walking through 1 Corinthians for over seven months. As you see on the image before you, we've looked at the church in Corinth, 
Thank God for the church, the church and her challenges, the unimpressive, a theology of preaching, the wisdom of God, and the spirit of God, babies and farming, God's construction site, correctly viewing pastors and ourselves, the Messiah's misfits, the neglected practice of church discipline, airing dirty laundry in public, sexual sin, answering questions about marriage, sex, and singleness, all of life for all of God. Be wise about Christian liberty, paying for your gospel mills, the soul winner, God's history lesson, the FCF for FFC, living in idolatry-filled Corinth, covered heads and broken bread, giftology, a study of God's gifts for the church, the loveless church, behavior that builds the church, rules for the church meeting, and in chapter 15, we looked at the gospel, the resurrection, our resurrection, and today we finish this penultimate chapter, the resurrection chapter. It's a magnificent crescendo to the book, a triumphant ending, a resurrection, both Christ and Christians. Death will not be the end for us any more than it was the end for Christ. One chapter devoted entirely to the doctrine of the resurrection. The best news that ever came, came from a graveyard. He is not here. He is risen. We've spent four Sundays in this chapter because it highlights the theological necessity of bodily resurrection. And we end chapter 15 here. Oh death, where is your sting? Oh death, where is your sting? We intend to interview death. Ask death some questions. Interrogate death. In our text, Paul personifies death. Meaning he talks to it like a person. We find Paul talking to the church. And we find Paul talking to death. All in the same passage. Paul is doing a lot of talking. He's going to be out of breath by the end of our text. You, you know who Paul is by now. He's a missionary. Everywhere he went he left one thing. A church. While visiting the city of Corinth. He left this local church. Paul wasn't just handing out shoes and food and candy. He was planting churches. And this church needs some watering and pruning and shaping up. So Paul pulls out his pruning tools and gets his hands dirty. There are three divisions in our text. It's interesting, isn't it, how there's always three? These are just simply hooks for you to hang the information I give you. A pastor teaching doctrine, verses 50 through 54a. Death answering questions, verse 54b through 57. Christians sweating bullets, verse 58. 
a pastor teaching doctrine, death answering questions, Christians sweating bullets. First, a pastor teaching doctrine. This pastor is not a stately fellow. He wasn't very spectacular. Paul is his name and unimpressive is his game. One ancient non-inspired description of Paul said, He was a man small of stature, with a bald head and crooked legs, with eyebrows meeting and a nose somewhat hooked. Who would listen to old Baldy teach? I mean, he can't even ride rides at Disney World. He's so short. He's a hobbit. He's got bow legs and a unibrow. And don't even get me started on his nose. How can anyone receive his teaching when they can't stop looking at his nose? He's not an impressive man. But he preaches an impressive doctrine. He has a weak body, but he seems to be okay with his weak body. It's like he has a doctrine that makes him okay with his body. On top of all of that, he's been beaten, bloodied, and bludgeoned. Not because of his hooked nose, but because of his gospel news. He told people that they had offended a holy God. And they needed to repent and believe on the resurrected Christ. You can't work your way to God. You must kneel before his son. You must kiss the son or face the father's wrath. In addition to his hooked and bloodied nose, Paul had what he called a thorn in the flesh. Some health issue that plagued him his entire life. Paul was always hurting. Hurting, but happy. How is that possible? There was a gospel that made him glad. A truth that made him thrilled. A doctrine that gave him delight. It's the same doctrine he now gives to this local church. Verse 50. I tell you this. Brothers, that's a Greek word for Christian men and women, uh, the church. I tell you this, church, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Paul sensed that even though he's worked hard at explaining the Christian's bodily resurrection... Some, some more explanation may be in order. He needs to do some more pruning, some more watering on the church's doctrine of bodily resurrection. Some in the congregation equated the resurrection of the body with the resuscitation of the body. They figured that the same body that died would walk into the new earth. Paul will get his bow legs, hook nose, and thorn in the flesh back. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Flesh and blood can't enter the kingdom. It's a solemn declaration. One that needs to be unpacked. 
And if we are not careful, we might read that and imagine the kingdom of God is not physical or for physical bodies. And then we quickly become Gnostics. When Paul mentions flesh and blood, he's referring to your body here and now like it is. Your guilty flesh, your sinful blood. That part of you that is still fallen and sinful. That part that still bears scars and thorns from the fall. Flesh and blood speaks of our physical mortal bodies that are open to death and decay. The current condition of our human existence. Our present mortal bodies. He says corruptible flesh and blood will not go into the kingdom. Only uncorruptible flesh and blood will go into the kingdom. You will not, church, go into the kingdom as you are. No part of you can remain fallen. Your perishable body cannot inherit an imperishable kingdom. Your earthly dress is unfit for heavenly habitation. You, you can't have something that ages, rots, and dies living somewhere eternal. Perishable flesh, sinful and corrupt, needs to become imperishable flesh, sinless and incorruptible. You have to change to match the kingdom's perfectness. The kingdom is not going to change to match your fallenness. You're not appropriately clothed in your decaying, mortal, sin-stained, fragile, temporary flesh. You need durable, unshakable, indestructible flesh. And this is not your current body 2.0, but far more than you could ever imagine. You were created soul and body, and you will be redeemed body and soul. This is not mere revivification of the dead. This is not a reanimated corpse. We're talking about the radical transformation of our bodies. Beloved, does that sound familiar to you? That was really all of last Sunday just revisited. A pastor teaching doctrine, a truth revisited, now a truth revealed. Verse 51, Paul says, behold. In other words, listen. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. A, a mystery is something previously concealed, but now revealed. This mystery was hidden. How was it uncovered? It's too profound for mere human discovery. This was divinely revealed. What is it? Not all Christians will sleep, but all Christians will change. The revisited truth is that we will all change. Bodies will not be destroyed or abandoned, but changed. Change is a matter of necessity because the old body is not suitable for the world to come. Our bodies are not made for what we will experience on the new earth. Lightweight bodies of earth 
do not belong in the heavyweight world of new creation. Revisited. The dead will be raised. That teaches continuity. The dead will be changed. That teaches discontinuity. A truth revisited changed. A truth revealed sleep. We will not all sleep. Sleep is Paul's favorite expression for death. It's a tranquil and peaceful way to talk about death. We will not all die. Wait, what? Not everyone is going to die? Verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. There will be a last generation. Some Christians will be left alive at Christ's return. They will be the select few to not ever face death. But both the dead and the living Christians will undergo instantaneous transformation. In a moment. That's the smallest conceivable instant. In a flash, change will come. In the twinkling of an eye, that denotes rapid eye movement. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, both phrases speak to the speed of change. An indivisible unit of time. By the time you look up, it's over. Instantaneous recreation. This will not be a long, drawn-out affair. It's not likened to the slow growth of a seed or the long intensity of a surgery. Transformation will take place instantaneously. On that great getting up morning, there will be a blast to end all blasts. A trumpet will sound. A trumpet will call the dead to rise. Trumpets were used in war and celebrations. Festive occasions and battle occasions. Jesus' second coming will be both. Verse 53. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. Notice the word must. It is emphatic. We cannot go to heaven with the bodies we have now. That which is corrupted by sin cannot exist in God's presence. Notice the two ordinary activities used as analogies. Sleeping and putting on clothes. We did one last night and the other this morning. You take one set of clothes off to put another set of clothes on. No remnant of the old man will cling to the new man. I must lay down the perishable to put on the imperishable. I must lay down the mortal to put on the immortality. Present clothing decays. Future clothing undecaying. The old can waste away. The new cannot. You must have new flesh for the new earth. One theologian pointed out when astronauts go into orbit... 
They have to wear a protective suit that can withstand the pressures and challenges of life in the hard vacuum of space. So, you will be equipped for the new earth in a new suit, a new body. New bodies prepared for a place where sin has been vanquished. Theologians call this glorification. When God finishes his work on you, there will be no more sin in you and no more effects of sin on your body. You are not suffering from anything a good resurrection cannot fix. You are not suffering from anything a good resurrection cannot fix. That has to be the doctrine that made Paul delight. That must be the gospel that made him glad. Paul could endure pain and suffering and not being overjoyed with his current body because he knew he was getting another one. Paul only had to look in the mirror to see his mortality. But he only had to look in the scriptures to see his immortality. Hey, Paul, you got a, you got a little blood on your face from that beating for preaching the gospel. Paul says, oh, it's nothing a good resurrection will not fix. Beloved, when you look at your decaying flesh, your painful mortality, remind yourself, I am not suffering from anything a good resurrection cannot fix. Underneath all the makeup is a desire for new skin. It's coming. Non-Christians, when the trumpet sounds, there will be no further opportunities afforded to you for salvation. Non-Christian, when the trumpet sounds, there will be no further opportunities afforded to you for salvation. Those who belong in the new creation will be taken into the new creation having themselves been made new. And those who belong in the outer darkness will be dispatched to the blackness of darkness forever. You, you have been telling yourself, oh, I got time. I'm still young. You could die at any moment. You could die leaving this building. You could die in your seat. A blood clot that's been forming hits your brain. You're gone. In seconds, you've been fending off Christian friends, ignoring their gospel presentations to you. You close your eyes every night to the prayers and tears of a Christian parent. Death doesn't wait for you. Death doesn't care what you've left undone. Death doesn't care about your to-do list. Death's coming down your road. You can't escape it. You can't hide from it. Death doesn't knock. It kicks your door down. You will not be able to run fast enough to escape it. You can't eat enough vegetables to appease it. There is nothing you can do to make yourself imperishable. Oh, you, uh, you escape cancer? 
congrats. Congrats. It may seem like you are prevailing against death for a round or two, but the right hook is coming. <laughs> others, others died in the firefight, but you escaped. You feel that relief of death? Don't. You may have dodged one bullet, but another will hit you. Death will win the fight. When it happens, you're going to be gone forever. In fact, you will not be gone forever. You will be forever. Be forever in hell. You are sleeping over hell's mouth. Wake up. The flame is under you now. L lie to me, Kyle. Lie to me. I will not lie to you. The flames of hell are calling for you. Right now, in your seat, call out to Christ for salvation. Wave the white flag. Confess your dark sins. Run to Christ and be saved. For the Christian... Paul keeps pouring on the comfort. Here's, here's a little more comfort. A little more comfort. Verse 54a. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality. Let's pause here, FFC. That is going to be a glorious change. I'm looking forward to getting a new mind. A new tongue. New eyes to see God's creation. Untainted eyes. Imagine that. Beholding God's creation with holy eyes. I have fallen ears. A fallen mind. And I can't wait to get new ones. We only use like 2% of our mental capacity. Maybe part of this change will be that we will use 100% of our mental capacity in the new body. We'll get a new brain in the new body. Adam's fall made our brains fallen. Adam's fall made our senses fallen. We have, we have five senses now, sight, smell, touch, hearing, and taste. We may have a thousand new senses. Two of my senses are heightened. I have like bionic smell and bionic hearing. I can smell when humidity is high in a room. I can, I can hear the craziest things. We used to have writing pens that clicked for your sermon note taking in your seats. I couldn't take it. <laughs> All during the sermon, I would hear you clicking those pins and I told Daniel Hurd they must sell pins that don't click <laughs> and that's why we have those beauties before you now they twist and make no sounds it was like Christmas for me when they came in that's one of the many reasons why we are sticklers for sound during the preaching I just hear everything and get distracted easily there may be 1,000 new senses and we will not be annoyed by any of them None of those senses will be fallen. New gates to view God's creativity. 
new ways to intake God's grace. We are not going to have fallen senses anymore. We are going to have redeemed senses when the perishable puts on the imperishable. Well, what if the perishable has been perished for a long time, Kyle? It doesn't matter if the body has been dead four days or 4,000 years. It is just as easy for God to raise the recently dead as the long dead. A pastor teaching doctrine, death answering questions. Verse 54b. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. The word picture here is to swallow something down completely. Death. Death. The mouth that swallows everything and is never satisfied will itself one day be swallowed up in victory. Death and its minions will be thrown in the garbage forever. Now, we will get church to the interrogation later. We will interview death. We will ask death some questions. I want to point out first that Paul is singing. He's broken out in a song. This is a biblical song, a Bible song. Paul cites two texts, Isaiah 25, 8 and Hosea 13, 14. Isaiah 25 speaks of death being swallowed up. Hosea 13 speaks of death's sting. Paul kind of loosely paraphrases both. He sees the resurrection of the new body as a fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. Verse 55. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? This is either referring to the sting of a wasp or bee, some insect, or it could be referring to the sting of a scorpion. This is death without a sting. It's no longer a deadly, damning, never-ending sting because death actually has no means of stinging the Christian. The sting is drained of its potency. Death, your bullets are blank. Paul is standing over death and he's singing. He's singing a Bible song written from Isaiah and Hosea. Both citations are fulfilled in Christ but have yet to be realized. The day Isaiah and Hosea looked for will one day finally be upon us. Death will die. Paul does not see death as the natural conclusion to the end of human life. Rather, he sees it as an enemy. Death has lost its sting because one day death will lose its hold. We will come out of the grave changed. Our victory is not yet fully experienced. We still wait the realization. The questions presented to death come in the form of a song. It's a Bible song, and it's also a taunt song. A taunt song. Death has played a monstrous role in history. It has 
terrorized us and tyrannized us and, and, and caused our feeble hearts to tremble. It invades and torments us while we are mortal. Death is a scorpion torturing people. But Paul mocks it. This is a taunt. He makes a mockery of death. He personifies death, talking to it like a person. Oh, death, have you lost your stinger? He sings of a triumph to come. He views death as a defeated foe. Paul shows no respect to death at all. Like Goliath taunted God's people, we taunt the giant of death. Let us respond to its foul mouth boastings with a taunt. Oh, death, where is your sting? A question answered theologically. Oh, death, where is your sting? A question answered theologically. Jesus absorbed that sting. He absorbed it on Calvary. Where is my sting, says death? It was in Christ. Then he pulled it out and broke it in half. A sting is something that causes pain when it goes into you. But God will take away the most painful part of death. It's not the sting that kills you, but the poison in it. The poison of that sting ran through Christ. He absorbed it. He then gave us the antidote. He neutralized the sting. He removed the poison. The effects of the sting are no longer permanent or eternally fatal. It's a stingless death. This is our triumphant song. You're not stinging anymore. B, Christians can look at death in the face without ultimate fear. The grave cannot keep me any more than it could keep Christ. Oh, death, where is your sting? A question answered theologically, a question asked historically. This is not the first time death has been taunted. Paul isn't the only one to taunt death. No, there was a man who came to die. And he did what he came to do. He came from imperishable and became perishable. Death nailed him on a cross. Death taunted him. I've got you now. It seemed he did. Jesus Christ died on a cross like a criminal. He committed no crimes of his own, but took on himself the crimes of the world. They took his limp body and laid it in a borrowed tomb. The stone closed the entrance and darkness fell on the body of Jesus. It was Friday and his body was cold and limp. Death is smoking cigarettes, blowing the smoke on the body. I breathe into you life. It was Saturday, and the body started to smell. The aroma of decomposition. Death breathed it in. Smells like victory. 
two days, death's been taunting. Two days, he's been claiming victory. On Sunday, something is happening in that tomb. That cold, lifeless body starts to warm up. Blood starts pumping. Lungs start moving. Skin color starts returning. Oh, death knows this isn't good. The room begins to smell better. No smell of decomposition anymore. Death starts stinging the body again and again and again. It's not working. He's still breathing. Now Jesus begins to move. Death jumps on him, trying with all his might to hold him down, but Jesus throws him off. Death cowers in the corner, shaking in his boots. Jesus takes the time to taunt him before the stone is removed. He is the light, and light flooded that dark tomb. Jesus slowly folds the grave clothes and neatly places them on the rock slab. At that moment, the stone rolled away. And Jesus walked out alive. Death makes one last grab, holding on to the foot of Jesus, but Jesus kicked him off. Death could not hold him. He death by dying slew. Who is singing now? <laughs> it's not Paul. It's Jesus. He's singing, oh death, where is your sting? He's singing Isaiah 25, 8. I will swallow up death forever. I will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of my people. He's taunting with Hosea 13, 14. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Jesus sings a Bible song. He sings a taunt song. Children who are afraid of death, Jesus conquered it. Children who are afraid of death, Jesus conquered it. You don't have to stay in bed scared at night. You don't have to tremble under the sheets. You don't have to cry yourself to sleep. Death has lost its sting. He lost it in Jesus. You can take Jesus at his word. If you call on him to save you, he will. It is true, death is not your friend. But it is a greater truth, Jesus conquered him. If you are his, you will never be taken from him. I took some liberties with that resurrection account. I don't know how it went down, but I do know death couldn't hold him. Oh, and um, by the way, adults, look at his resurrected body. Look at Jesus' resurrected body. He kept his scars. So you don't have to keep yours. Children who are afraid of death, Jesus conquered it. You who refuse to have childlike faith, death still has a sting for you. It is totally appropriate for you to fear death. You who refuse to have childlike faith, death still has a sting for you. 
it is totally appropriate for you to fear death. Where sin is pardoned, death has no sting. Where it goes unpardoned, it still stings. And you say, I don't, I don't fear death, Kyle. It doesn't faze me. Death is not meant to be high-fived. Your emotions may be dead to death, but your soul is screaming, there is something to this. Death will open for you an eternity of wrath. It's never just the moment of death. It's the countless thousands of years in flames. Verse 56. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. The connection between sin and the law is developed more fully in Romans 5 through 7 and Galatians 3 to 5. The law condemns the sinner. The law itself, by itself, is holy, righteous, and good, but it cannot save alone. It does not cure our sin. It merely draws attention to it. The cause and effect framework is initiated. The law activates sin. Sin activates death. Every time we break God's law, sin whispers in our ear, You deserve to die. You're a lawbreaker. You have not fulfilled the demands of the law. Depart. The presence of sin forces the law to pronounce a sentence. Verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It looks like a defeat for us and a victory for death, but law's demands were satisfied on our behalf. We are now dead to the law's condemnation. We whisper back to the law. Jesus kept this perfectly. In my place. Notice the full title of majesty. Our Lord Jesus Christ. All believers are graciously allowed to share in the spoils of victory. Death has been declawed, defamed, disarmed, and disgraced embarrassingly. This change of the body is an essential transformation needed to escape sin's power. You can both be lost and talk about the resurrection of your body. You can both be lost and talk about the resurrection of your body. Benjamin Franklin, the man on the $100 bill, was raised by Christian parents, but later became a deist even though he was friends with George Whitfield, He saw the effects of Whitfield's preaching, but it seemed to never have a saving effect on him. A deist is someone who affirms a divine creator, but denies divine revelation. Engraved on Benjamin Franklin's tombstone at Christ Church, Philadelphia, are these words. The body of B. Franklin... Printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here food for worms. 
But the work shall not be wholly lost. For it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more perfect edition, corrected and amended by the author. End quote. Could you be talking about your bodily resurrection but denying what Jesus said about salvation? Don't be a Benjamin. Everyone wants to talk about new bodies. But not everyone wants to be subject to scripture. Benjamin Franklin will have a resurrected body. The Bible does not describe what the resurrected bodies of non-believers will be like. But they are immortal. Never cease dying. Jesus talked about whole bodies being cast into hell. But never burning into non-existence. Not everyone who talks about the new earth is going there. A pastor teaching doctrine, death answering questions, Christians sweating bullets. They're not sweating because of worry. They're not sweating because they're not sure about the resurrection. They are actually sweating because they are quite sure of the resurrection. Verse 58, therefore, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Therefore, in light of everything I've just written, work to lazy Christians, Paul says, work for the Lord. Alistair Begg calls this a tireless, a call to tireless endeavor. Respond to the Lord's grace with work. Giving oneself to that work. Don't do the Lord's work in a half-hearted manner. Willingly be engaged in burdensome activity for Jesus. He's worth breaking a sweat for many work few toil leisure and relaxation have become two great modern idols in the states the word labor in the Greek means to toil to the point of exhaustion hey Paul Paul why you work so hard the work has been done for you Paul responds, no, I'm not working for favor. I'm working from favor. This is rightly motivated work. This is gospel motivated sweat. This is grace motivated labor. Paul has an endless motor. He's been pouring himself out because he knows he will be rewarded. This is a call to work. A call to faithful Christian service. Because you will be rewarded. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. No work for the Lord is in vain. No time in the nursery is in vain. No time in Adventure Club is in vain. No hospitality 
is in vain. No discipleship is in vain. No teaching lessons or prep for them are in vain. No time spent raising and discipling your children. No time spent reaching unreached people groups. No time spent translating the Bible into a language where they don't have it. No gospel witness is in vain. Members of FFC, your labor is not in vain. It is in the Lord. Jesus' resurrection not only gives final victory in the end, it infuses everything in the present with meaning, value. Throw yourself into the work of the Master. Our work is not lost. The Christian faces no such discouragement. His labor is in the Lord. The resurrection motivates you to work. Father, We have feasted on your word. It has motivated us to keep serving you. To be unmovable in our service to you. Your word has instructed us. Convicted us. Comforted us. And revealed to us our precious Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. He will keep us because he has promised he would. Amen.